Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the eastern border. I've been actively working the last few days since, uh, well, talking with Zach is awesome, but, uh, you know, doesn't end the daily, daily grind. One thing that was super important that happened was um, that Prigozhin came out with an interview, and it was crazy. He came out with an interview to a Russian war correspondent and stated that basically in Bakhmut, Wagner Group is nearly dead, and that he's angry, and that he's ready to, you know, give answers and, and yell at at, the, at Moscow and everyone. And there are various op- options about, you know, what this could be. Is it, how true is it? Because the casualties have been devastating, and, you know, Prigozhin has fallen out of favor, certainly, so is this desperation, and what's going on? That's a huge story. And, um, I was about to, you know, actually record about this right now, but that's going to have to wait. One, because half of my script got, um, well, deaded, since <clears throat> apparently updating some drivers has caused my PC to do a blue screen, which isn't fun. And secondly, because um, when that happened, I opened my laptop and um, was sent something that I just need, need, to, need to talk about today. And don't worry, Prigozhin and all this stuff, we have to wait until Girkin comments on it. And I mean, and more than just a tiny little little post on, on Telegram. But um, today, I have an investigation for you made by Vierstka, which are investigative journalists working, you know, very seriously about the Russia and this war and everything. They are, of course, opposition. But um, they came out with an investigation about how Putin came to hate Ukraine. Namely, about how he came up with the war, with all the details, and, uh, well, with... I uh, have to give credit where credit is due, way more contacts that, I, that even I have. And these are legit ones. And, of course, of course they only release it in Russian. And I don't know when someone else is gonna go down rereading it all, rereading all this stuff. But, uh, and translating this for you, but, you know, here I am. The, um, the original author of this whole thing in Russian is um, Ilya Zhegulev. And he used to be a for- former special correspondent for Smart Money, Forbes, Medusa, and Reuters. And he's done a lot of research and everything. And he's done a really good job. Because he's made an investigation based on conversations with former and current officials in the Russian and Ukrainian authorities. And, uh, well, they each are legit and, well, hard to put it, they, they are certainly people of authority. And these are stories, you know, that are given to, by former and current functionaries close to the Kremlin and as he points points out, they cannot serve as an excuse for the tragedy, but they help to understand the evolution of the Russian ruler's thinking that led to it. So, um, this is going to be more or less a coherent narrative, and, um, yeah, I'm sorry all those people who want me to sleep more, I didn't sleep because of all this once again, so, well... But you'll understand when, once you get through it. This is definitely worth it. 
So after the gubernatorial elections in the Mascar region in September 2013, one of the creators of a huge team of um, political technologists who were rubbing his hands together said, well, guys, well done. Now you'll go to Western Ukraine to train. This, this was what a political strate strategist close to the administration of Putin mentioned in one of these conversations. Ten years ago, according to him, there was no discourse that there were any, you know, <laughs> bad Ukrainians at all. Russian technologists work, worked both with the team of Viktor Yanukovych and with his opponents from more pro-European-oriented politicians and no one had any questions and nothing happened there. Political technologists received lucrative contacts from all parties and earned money. And, um, quote, and how many communications between football fans were there, between Russians and Ukrainians? There really was friendship. And even the nationalists were friends with each other. The Kremlin's attitude toward Ukraine really seemed to have changed in a matter of weeks in February 2014, when Putin, apparently single-handedly, decided to annex Crimea. And, well, that's how people looked at this. And a lot of them look at it. But apparently, as the eyewitnesses in this story state, the whole situation evolved even earlier. See, there was a thing called the Orange Revolution of 2004. 2004, yes. And that's a long story, and it's back there in my back episodes. Before that, serious disagreements were there between Moscow and Kiev. Only once, though, but they were really important. In 2003, the island of Tuzla, in the Sea of Azov, where about 30 families of fishermen lived, became a bit of a stumbling block. At some point, Russia began to pour the coast towards the fishing island, and which caused great tension, up to the strengthening of the defense of Tuzla by regular Ukrainian troops. But in the end, both countries agreed on an agreement on cooperation in the Sea of Azov and Kerch Strait, and the conflict was just forgotten for a long time. Leaving the presidency after two terms, at that point, uh, Ukrainian President Leonid Kuchma asked Moscow to support his successor, Viktor Yanukovych, which the Kremlin did with a lot of zeal. Quote, There is a special program on the air of three national TV channels of Ukraine. TV channel Inter, one, uh, one plus one, and First National. Vladimir Putin, live broadcast. The geography of questions is the whole of Ukraine. All calls from the territory of Ukraine are free. The host spoke in Ukraine in the studio as if he were not in Kiev but in Ostankino, which is the Moscow central TV station. In a studio in Kiev between two flags, Ukraine and Russia, the president of Russia sat and answered questions from citizens of a neighboring state for an hour. It was the, it was the end of October 2004, the final stage of Viktor Yanukovych's presidential campaign, on which Moscow had staked everything. To support the candidate, Putin came to Kiev and took part in a direct analogue of the Russian direct line, where Putin speaks directly with, with the people, you know, answers their questions. With the difference that Ukrainians asked him questions this time, and apparently more than 80,000 were received. Putin even said that Russia has a lot to learn from Ukraine, saying that the economic growth of Ukraine under Prime Minister Yanukovych has outstripped Russia's in terms of pace. From Moscow, Dmitry Medvedev, who then headed the presidential administration of Russia, oversaw the elections, and from Kiev, Viktor Medvedchuk, head of the presidential administration of Ukraine, was looking at it the same way. 
It was that in that year that Putin became the godfather of uh, Medvedchuk's goddaughter Daria. Then the administration of the president of Ukraine worked closely in conjunction with the Russian one and the special assistant for relations of the two administrations. But his own admission was the Russian political strategist Gleb Pavlovsky. One of Moscow's pre-election moves was the map of the three varieties of Ukraine, into which Viktor Yushchenko had at that point allegedly divided the country, where the third class is the south and east of Ukraine. But all this did not help. As a result of the Orange, Orange Revolution, after the mass protest in the second vote in 2004, Viktor Yushchenko became president of Ukraine. This was... But um, instead of Yanukovych, just, just so you understand, Yushchenko did the, the maps, you know, uh, showed the maps that Yushchenko had done bad things, and then Yushchenko still won. Yanukovych and Yushchenko do different people. I I'm translating this work, like, in full as much as I can, so I I'm going to have to give some comments here, because he he's working in a totally different style than I do, so. But again, it's totally worth it. But Moscow continued to bet on opposition and even succession of regions. At the height of the Orange Revolution, the first attempt was even made to separate the South and East. A pro-Russian congress of deputies of all levels was held in Severodonetsk. From Russia it was attended at that time by an influential politician, Moscow mayor Yuri Lushkov. In turn, the then head of the Donetsk Regional Council, Boris Kolesnikov, directly called for secession from Ukraine. Quote, we propose to express no confidence in all the highest bodies of state power that violate the law. Create a new southeastern Ukrainian state in the form of a federal republic. Kharkov will become the capital of the new state, thus the first capital of the independent Ukrainian republic will be restored, Kolesnikov said. However, obviously that didn't happen at that time. Russia then did not interfere at that point with weapons in the affairs of sovereign states and without support, no one went to the secession, it was just this one guy. By the way, currently, apparently he's been called to comment on this, because he's still alive and doing things, and um, apparently his comment was, thank you, I'm not interested, because his foundation, Kolesnikov Foundation, currently actively supports the armed forces of Ukraine and everything. I think they've switched sides pretty neatly, because at that point, you know, Moscow money must have been really, really tasty. In 2000, by 2010, the pro-Western President Yushchenko, who won, had, lo had lost most of his ratings, and th that's Ukrainian political tradition, by the way. And in the early 2010, Yanukovych finally won the presidential election. And this time, there were no mass complaints about the vote count that, you know, happened in 2004. After becoming president, Yanukovych immediately began to make decisions that Moscow could not even dream of during the time of the moderate politician Kuchma. Kuchma was the guy previous, uh, previously before well, any of this. He declared that Ukraine would not join NATO, although that really wasn't on the paper back then even, initiated a law on the status of the Russian language as a regional language, and spoke out that um, the Holodomor was... Not a genocide of Ukrainian people, but a common problem of Soviet history. And if you've listened to my episodes on Holodomor, and I highly recommend that you do, you, you'll understand why that is a very, very sensitive subject and um, really disrespectful. A source close to the administration of Putin states, quote, 
our special services sat in the leadership of Ukraine, led it, and individual business units as well. What was the point of doing something when everyone was yours? According to him, the plan was simple. Her approachment with Ukraine, following the model and likeness of, you know, how they work with Belarus. There was a whole president in the country who was actually on our payroll, explains their source. Just as the United States once had President um, Batista in Cuba, he also had Yanukovych in Ukraine. His attitude was the same. Of course, they played along and helped him. That was our son of a bitch. And that's that I quote him. At the same time, Russia also worked diplomatically, trying to dissuade Europe from flirting with Ukraine. Uh, another source states, Russian diplomats came to Paris. They told the, the West that we are against the European Association. This will not happen. You must stop it. Uh, this, by the way, comes from a source close to Vladislav Surkov, who from 2013 to 2019 was in charge of um, charge of Kremlin's bureau with um, Ukraine questions. Carrying on from this quote. Like, it will, it will be a blow to the relations that exist between Ukraine and Russia. It's it, it like... Everyone said that, you know, this is a common history, and without this there was no history about the Russian world at all. Well then, Yanukovych abandoned the association agreement with the EU, and succumbed to the Kremlin's temptation to enter into a customs union with Russia. And uh, this whole thing, you know, ended with the, the second Maidan. Because the first one, after Kuchma, Yanukovych was supposed to win, supported by Putin, then Yushchenko comes in, Yushchenko serves two terms, as usual becomes unpopular, then Yanukovych wins again, and then he does all these things, and then a Maidan happens. Although the article kind of, you know, they're very polite and they don't mention that it wasn't just randomly fell into the succumb to Kremlin, this was more like a $15 billion loan given on super low percentages, out of which Yanukovych pocketed insane amounts of money. You know, it was um, corruption and craft through and through. But, you know, what happened, starting with the Maidan situation. Putin's attitude towards Ukraine deteriorated along with relations with, with the West. Quite quickly, in the post-Soviet space, where I live in, and I like to say former Soviet better because it's a mess, and, you know, this whole situation here, primarily Ukraine and Georgia, they became a space of confrontation for, for Putin. The first blow that happened there was the Rose Revolution in Georgia, when, after mass protests in the country, the leader changed to the pro-Western Mikhail Saakashvili, which was incomprehensible to Putin. The second, more serious, was the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. Quote, It's not about Ukraine. There was not just a Maidan. There was the destruction of all the rules of the game. Which is someone close to Putin had told this journalist. The right of citizens to challenge power in their countries through manifestations and elections was not taken seriously in the Kremlin, considering, considering such actions to be solely the result of the external influence from the West. And this is exactly what I've been also telling you on my show all the time, that Putin simply does not believe democracies ever exist on any level possible. And all of this led Putin to the Munich speech in 2007, which was interpreted critically by the West. A source close to the Kremlin now estimates, quote, he was a little rude back then, he spoke rather politically incorrectly. Well, and the West said to this, well, they say, what a bad, but he swears, you know, was rude, uncouth, random person. And that was the result, everyone just misunderstood him completely. 
In addition to the revolutions in the post-Soviet space and the expansion of NATO to the east, another annoying uh, other annoying things kept popping up in relations between Washington and Moscow. As an example, an official of the presidential administration cites the story of joining the World Trade Organization, for which, according to him, Russia was more ready than Ukraine, and Ukraine was the first to get in. And, in 2011, Alexander Voloshin, who was then developing the International Financial Center in the capital, received a phone call from the Russian ambassador to Ukraine, Mikhail Zurabyov. He said that the central central depository is also being created in Kyiv, and the curators of the project suggested signing a cooperation agreement with Moscow. Voloshin was not opposed, but the agreement did not work out. An official of the Russian presidential administration, who previously had spoke to, uh, spoken with the Americans on duty, cite this as an example of not the most friendly behavior of the United States, of which apparently there were many. It was like all weird stuff in very deep low speak as well. Along with the change in attitudes towards the West, Putin was also influenced by domestic stories. During and after the 2012 protests, Putin began to spend more time alone with books of um, a certain kind. Among people close to the Kremlin, there had been talk that Putin is increasingly sitting in the archives. For, for him, by the way, at this time, they even created a special working group in the presidential administration with select books and necessary pages for him on the topic he had set, says the Kremlin political, former Kremlin political strategist. Even before these whole even before this whole mess, uh, Putin became interested in the White Guard philosopher Ivan Ilyin, and after the failed protests, the Russian president became much more immersed in the text of authors similar, similar to Ilyin's views, and, um, well, <laughs> my dear buddy Alexander from History Impossible, this is where uh, Mr. Dugin also comes in, just so you know. Another person that he really liked was the religious philosopher of the early 20th century, uh, Vasily Ruzanov. The latter was critical of liberals and intelligentsia. And uh, I quote, this is a quote from this Razanov person, quote, Yes, I find it better to stand as a policeman on the corner of two streets, more civilian, more useful, more noble, and in line with human dignity, than to sit at an intelligent breakfast and discuss snobbishly, snobbishly how everything is bad with us and how we ourselves are good, righteous, honest, and ready to suffer for the truth. Hillian, in turn, did not feel any reverence for Ukraine as an independent state at all. Ukraine is recognized as the most threatened part of Russia in terms of separation and conquest. That's, by the way, the philosopher wrote in the resolution of the Congress of White Emigrants in 1938. He also mentioned that Ukrainian separatism is an artificial phenomenon, devoid, devoid of real grounds, and so forth and so forth. And one of the Kremlin technologists, in these political technologists is there, named says that, well, Putin began, began speaking almost in direct quotations, from these guys and many more. One of the former near-Kremlin technologists also mentions in this investigation that, quote, in Putin's pantheon of gods, everything was, you know, simply lined up and, and made on a very simple spectrum. He knows, because of all the situation, that Western states are cultivating Ukrainians with cunning, deceit, manipulation, and technology to make them anti-Russia. It didn't work out with the old believers, out of whom we, by the way, have a lot of them in Latvia. It worked out with the Ukrainians. These are the ideal Russians for the enemies of Russia. 
And apparently, according to Putin, Ukraine as a state was created, built precisely as part of the USSR, often to the detriment of the Russian population. Which is, you know, obvious nonsense, but hey, it is what it is. Back in January 2014, we're coming back to the timeline, Putin was not going to seize Crimea. Three sources tell about this, in the uh, presidential administration, among political technologists close to Kremlin, and among acquaintances close to Putin. The decision came spontaneously when the Kremlin realized in February that protesters in central Kiev were defeating Yanukovych's rule. First, Moscow once again staked on a congress of deputies with a possible subsequent secession of a part of Ukraine. They wanted, you know, that part to go away and stuff, the, the old song about southeastern Ukraine. Russian technologists participated in the organization of the Congress, one of the sources close to Vladislav Surkov tells <laughs> these investigator guys. The Congress of Deputies of the Southeast of Ukraine was supposed to be headed by Viktor Yanukovych himself, who flew, flew to Kharkiv, urgently retreating from Kiev by helicopter when, you know, his mansion was found out. However, at the last moment, the owners of, um, the owners of Kharkiv and the region, Gennady Kerns and Michael Dobkin, refused to play this game. A source who was involved in the preparation of the Congress testifies, quote, When they realized that Russia wanted to play, play for the collapse of our country, they sharply became pro-Ukrainian and told Yanukovych that they no longer supported the idea. On February 22nd, Yanukovych was already in Kharkiv, but realized, realizing that the idea had failed, he did not come to the audience. At the Congress, instead of calling for secession, Kernes and Dobkin spoke, calling for peace and promising to keep Ukraine united. The Russian operation had failed. On the same day, the Verkhovnaya Rada removed Yanukovych from power. And, well, it was on the night of February 22nd, 23rd, 2014, after Yanukovych had fled from Kharkiv, that Putin decided to annex Crimea. He told about it himself, but sources close to the president also confirm it. The meeting in Sochi, where the Winter Olympics were closing at that moment, lasted until 7am with the participation of the four security officials closest to it. As one of the Putin's close acquaintances testifies, at first the security forces tried to dissuade him. Putin said, quote, <clears throat> this is quote, uh, Guys, this is our last chance, there won't be another chance, I take responsibility. Later, in a conversation with another close acquaintance of his, who told him the annexation of Crimea was a catastrophe and the consequences would be terrible, Putin replied that he did not care about the consequences. Quote, A huge historical piece of its land has returned to Russia. This has not happened in 1,000 years. So that practically without blood, without victims, you know, we got it. No matter what happens next, now Crimea will still remain Russian. And uh, no matter is, well, a polite version of this. Let me tell you. In the beginning, he did not expect the annexation of Crimea to, to get support at home, but, uh, you know, <laughs> they started going there in early March and all this stuff, because, you know, this is going to be really long if I... Um, I had misjudged the length of this whole s- stuff, and oh boy, this is this is what happens when 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 I collaborate with people. We do a lot of work, <laughs> but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip skip over some of the more poetic parts because we're now to the annexation of Crimea. Have to run through to get closer to the war. Otherwise, <laughs> this is going to be three hours and <clears throat> pretty bad. <laughs> Basically, people coming in came in in secret in March and. There was no clear plan on how to seize these territories. Attempts to gather rebel groups were, moreover, in Odessa and Dnipropetrovsk. And apparently, you know, only Girkin succeeded in Donetsk and Luhansk. And um, 
source familiar with the participants in the process. Who knows? Girkin, by the way, states, Donbass was a mistake, connected with the fact that it seemed that the people would rise up in Donetsk as well as in Crimea. But the attempt to raise the people was not particularly successful. And apparently, the further separation of Donbass was no longer Putin's personal initiative. Quote, It was the initiative of the FSB officers who decided to take advantage of the situation and unleash this whole story. A source close to Putin at the time tells the journalists. And this is the thing. I believe that part because I, I highly doubt that Putin would approve of something as dumb as what, what Girkin did at that time. There were a bunch of people, a bunch of pro-Russian forces, and I've been onto this previously, but um, one of these sources in this investigation states, quote, Everyone was playing different games and practically no one was coordinating their activities. After separatist formo- formations were formed with the help of all sorts of pro-Russian people and you know, businessmen who've been paid from their pockets and mercenaries from Russia and all this stuff sent in. Putin instructed other subordinates to integrate into the process, for example, Vladislav Surkov, who began to deal with the political part, building a system for managing these rebellious regions, which were just totally, you know, one day they found out that, hey, they actually wanted to be a part of Russia all over. And despite the unofficial participation of Russian troops in August 2014 in their counterterrorism thing, there were no plans and readiness for a full-scale war yet. The Kremlin hoped to outwit the Ukrainian authorities. And this is, by the way, the important part. I'll get to Zelen- what, what role Zelensky plays to this, but as you know, there were the Minsk agreements, and, and this war was supposed to be settled by them. And, uh, and yeah, this is what these guys found out and what people know about this stuff, about the Minsk agreements. Quote, The Minsk agreements for Putin were a great relief. It's said by a former member of the negotiating team. Putin himself personally participated in the writing of the Minsk agreements. He himself formulated the points concerning the status and concerning political regulations. And then Putin could only call for the fulfillment of them anyways. And an explanation of this comes from this source as well. Quote, What does it mean to fulfill the Minsk agreements? Ukraine introduces a law on the special status of the Donetsk and Luhansk people's republics, changes the, con- changes the constitution, all the republics formally return to the control of Ukraine with their two army corps and their political structures, chosen under the control of Russia, full with Russian agents and mercenaries. And all this is legalized. That is, two foreign bodies appear in Ukraine, which are not subordinate to Kiev. That is what it meant to execute Minsk. If Minsk had been completed, the Donbass would have been used to rebuild the whole of Ukraine along the lines of it. That was the plan. According to another source, by the way, Putin believed that he simply fooled the then-president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko. But uh, apparently that was not the case. This fuss was just weird. The conflict was at that point was frozen in the Kremlin by the end of 2014, these were like separatists were pushed aside and Girkin was sent away and everything and um and yeah this was the whole situation putin wanted all of ukraine and the mess with minsk agreements and how they were settled and how poroshenko fought against them that's a big part of all the situation and furthering on with these talks about the minsk agreements when the whole mess was just down there quote Putin continued to aggressively find links between Ukraine and the United States. And uh, more people close to Putin say, quote, he was sure that NATO and the United States in fact control Ukraine. He's just single-minded on this topic. 
And uh, mm. good friend quotes a private conversation with Putin. The United States Embassy in Ukraine employs more than a thousand people, and we have like, what, a hundred? The budget of the United States Embassy in Ukraine is ten times higher. Putin, of course, believes, and, you know, believed and still believes, that the states make all decisions regarding Ukraine, and it was impossible to convince him otherwise. And, you know, that's the thing. By the way, Bloomberg reported in January 2022 that the U.S. Embassy in Kiev had about 180 American citizens and 560 Ukrainians working there. And um, I've been to Ukraine. Uh, I, I know that Americans actually don't run it, because otherwise... <laughs> If Ukraine would be your property, you'd be, uh, as a government, much more active, actively involved in all this situation. That much I have learned from American people. And then Zelensky came in 2019 when this mess was like Minsk agreements, then they get frozen down, then the counter-terrorist uh, thing. And of course, I'm running over a bunch of stuff, because, uh, yeah, I translated a lot of it, and then inserts happen, and, and weirdness. At the beginning, by the way, Zelensky surprised Putin in a good way. He truly believed he could deal with something, dealt with something like unexpected and, and new. For starters, he he had been in Moscow. He had danced in the same stages as everyone else in, in the big, in big entertainment sphere. And well, this whole mess apparently ended up angering Zelensky. Managed to anger him personally. Quote. <clears throat> Obviously, Zelensky is a talented person, trained, and he came with a relatively naive idea that, uh, you know, how he will settle things and how everything was going to happen. He wanted to make sure that everything happens in a, in a human way, says another of these sources. Because, you know, when, at the beginning of these talks, when they were negotiating more about the Minsk agreements and what would happen and whether or not it would be temporary, at that time, Zelensky stated that uh, Putin, you know, uh, they wanted to change... Medvedchuk, you know, the guy uh, who is the godfather of, of um, who, whose daughter is the goddaughter of Putin and everything. And, you know, they wanted to exchange him in the negotiation process on Donbass for his assistant, Andrei Yermak, basically. According to a source close to the administration of the Russian president, Zelensky believed that Medvedchuk, you know, just makes money, just uses connections to earn money and, you know, can be shifted around because obviously he was in, in, like searched in Ukraine and it was all, all mess and everything. And, uh... Yeah, and that was weird, since he wanted to do something good, but Putin just wouldn't budge and wouldn't play, and that was just weird. Putin just hoped that it would be possible to negotiate with Zelensky, assuming that he would beat the inexperienced politician and, you know, finally launch the full implementation of Minsk agreements, but, uh, well, then December 2019 happened, and this is, I think, the big point. I think you can, like, look it up even somewhere. In December 2019, Putin went to Paris in full confidence that the long-standing issue would move. However, as it turned out, Zelensky was an even more difficult negotiator than his predecessor. He refused to hold elections in Donbass until the transfer of the border, and members of his team even tried to rewrite the key paragraph of the special status of Donbass in the agreements, making it not permanent but temporary. Surkov, who participated in the negotiations, threatened to stop the peace talks altogether, and according to one of the Ukrainian ministers, almost threw himself at colleague Andriy Yermak with his fists and angrily shouted and stamped his feet. But, uh, but yeah, the biggest hit was in a PR front. Well, this whole thing turned a cold shower to Putin. 
Putin, who came down to these negotiations to finally settle the Minsk agreements and settle this Donbass issue and basically take over Ukraine, came down from the mountain to accept the surrender of Ukraine, and in fact turned out to be in the role of an abandoned bride. Hey, the original text uh, thing, not mine here. Alexander Karebin, one of those who developed Zelensky's foreign policy strategy as part of his campaign headquarters, assesses this in, you know, conversation. He states that this whole mess was just awful. Putin's arrival in Paris was a colossal, colossal mistake by the Russian president, who overestimated all the situation. From the great Tsar of all of Rus, Putin had become almost a laughingstock. Zelensky helped him in this. Right during Putin's speech at the press conference, when Putin spoke about the adoption of a document on strict observance of the Minsk agreements, Zelensky smiled and shook his head. And when Putin spoke about the special status, he was completely amused and even covered his mouth with his hand as, so as not to laugh, because, you know, he's a comedian. It was unexpected for everyone, and for the first time, so obvious, says Ukrainian advisor Harebin. Putin actually received a public slap in the face, and that must have been a traumatic experience. From the expression of the face of the Ukrainian president, it was clear that he had difficulty with standing the joint press conference. He did not even look in the direction of Zelensky and often checked his papers. Since then, they both have never met, and Surkov resigned from his post as curator of Ukraine and Donbass two months later. After the failure of Paris, Moscow relied on soft power and um, Medvedchuk had become, you know, a key confidant there. And then, well, a bit of a 2020 elections and med parliament elections and Medvedchuk story, but I'll, I'll just tell it really short here. What basically happened is that Medvedchuk was running a super pro-Russian TV channel there in Ukraine, a brutal propaganda one, you know, openly speaking about how Crimea was all Ukraine's fault, how, how Russia is best and how Ukraine should, like, very, very anti-Ukrainian stuff all the time. Very pro-Russian, just everything and... And, you know, making a lot of anti-West sentiments and everything. And then, at one point, the final straw came, when after all this situation, again, with integration and with elections and everything, but the Chuk's party... Uh, yeah, they... Um, they lost the election to Zelensky's political party, and it turns out that Medvedchuk had totally lied. And this is not the first time when Medvedchuk actually lied. And after this whole mess, when, uh, you know... The, the sources confirmed that it was the story of destruction of Medvedchuk's information resource and the fact that, you know, they began to actually investigate his activities, which were truly like a Russian agent. That was the last straw. This Medvedchuk guy, way more important. Quote, Hitting when they did, when they took away his television and the party began to play tricks and, and investigate the corruption charges, that really turned Putin on, says one of the old acquaintances. He took it as a personal attack. The existence of Medvedchuk and his channels was like a bridge and I hope to somehow resolve the situation by political means. And suddenly Ukraine escalates and investigates them on corruption. And, apparently, he decided that uh, that was a great time to strike. That time, by the way, uh, COVID has already set in and the bunker person is there. And apparently Medvedchuk was continuing his lies and, as usual, quote, Medvedchuk told fairy tales, mastered this money that he was paid for organizing political resistance and you know, did not believe anyone would ever check. But it calls a source close to the presidential administration. He talked about the loyalty of the territory, stupidly misleading Putin. And the Kremlin did not question this guy. Instead of drawing the conclusions about the adequacy of the information received, analyzing and seeing the obvious picture, that they're not expected there, 
Resentment and anger clouded their eyes. For Medvedchuk, this was just a random war, and he was there, and he just continued lying about this stuff, and everyone just went along with this. When deciding on the war with Medvedchuk, by the way, Putin did, did not consult anyone. Like, with no one else at all. The only person who had permanent access to Putin was, you know, besides Medvedchuk, who is my guy in the bunker telling Putin nice things, was also Putin's friend Yuri Kovalchuk. Two sources confirmed that Kovalchuk played a decisive role in Putin's decision to launch this special operation. Oh, by the way, Yuri Kovalchuk is Putin's closest friend, co-founder of the Ozero Cooperative, the Lake Cooperative, I'm writing about this, co-owner of the National Media Group, basically runs a bunch of things, invest, invest in newspaper, and is the guy who took over, like, Ren TV and everything. Big media guy, uh, known for his anti-liberal, anti-Western views, and a uh, total fan of conspiracies. So, between a guy who was, like, out of his business and uh, lying and thinking no one would check, and a guy who's an open conspiracy theorist, these were the guys who were closest to Putin, and, um, yeah... <laughs> During the pandemic, only Yuri Kovalchuk and Medvedchuk were allowed to leave Putin's residence so as not to be quarantined afterwards. Well, at least now we now I know the thing. And again, what I've mentioned on the show, but here's a quote from an official investigation, more official than what I do. Quote, Putin at the moment was limiting in communicating with anyone else who was like even, even near adequate. He tried not to meet with anyone, and if he did during the, four, like during the 14 days of quarantine, people became so brutalized that a normal conversation did not develop. In addition, a meeting at a distance of 15 meters does not imply confidential communication. It was this Kovalchuk guy who, you know, bought into this stuff as a conspiracy theorist and who convinced Putin that Europe is divided by contradictions and now is the best time for a quick operation. Apparently, the decision to prepare for the operation was made in late February, Early March 2021, a year before the war. It was already kind of previously in the air as well. The official decision then is early March 2021. And, you know, they, they did a lot of prep work and everything. And, you know, this was just weird. Now, we also have like a bunch of information about the, the calculations about what they were exactly were preparing for and everything. Because there's a lot of military stuff, which I have to go through once again, but, well, now you know. Defense Minister, by the way, Shoigu, at the end of this, when this was decided and when this everything started moving, did not argue and even rejoiced at Putin's decision. Uh, one of Putin's old friends stated, he did not understand the state of the army and he was interested. He believed that Putin knew something that he did not know and really thought that there would be something not much more serious than the annexation of Crimea. The rest of the elites were put before the fact already at the day of the invasion. And um, my last quote from this is, mm. This is an amazing war, but almost the, the entire elite is against it. I talked to the bosses in Russia. There is not a single person from the highest echelons of power who would be in favor. But they understand that they need to work as a team, says the former Kremlin official citing private conversations. Those who do not understand are shown what needs to be understood. Because, you know, one of the sources tell the story of how one high-ranking official in the state Duma in the spring of 2022 came to the curator of Kremlin's domestic policy, Sergei Kirienko, and said that he could no longer work there and wanted to leave. And the next day, the FSB officers came to my wife. The security forces also came to my son, who has a business. 
Half a week later, the official came back to Kirienko and said that he could change his mind about leaving. That is good. And this Kirienko guy just smiled and casually began to discuss his future plans. So this is how the war starts. With one man who is hungry with power and whose familiar buddy with whom they worked together met a conspiracy dude and then everything happened. And now, if you're against this, and apparently most people are, you get your family threatened. Or, you know, have a close acquaintance with the window. And that's it for today. Again, I skipped a bunch of it because, yeah, well, <laughs> this this grew a bit more even with my working and everything. Crazy. Um, we're going to look at Prigozhin and the news in the front. I just thought that this was a really interesting and important topic to cover. If you like the show, please consider becoming our Patreon on patreon.com slash border. Follow us on Twitter at <clears throat> Torquemada Stark. Please, you, you can just Google up um, Kristaps Andresson's my name and surname and, and find it that way. And uh, yeah, if you want to listen without ads, again, I had no, I know nothing about these advertisements and anything that's being run here. So if you want to listen without ads, you can also just go to the easternborder.lv and make a one-time donation there. And, you know, all the episodes there are ad-free. And of course, they're always ad-free for our patrons. And um, yeah, see you next time. And let's hope that we're going to have some Good news. До свидания, товарищи. And remember, happiness is mandatory.